What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin. I'm thrilled that you would choose to spend some time here with me today. I hope that everybody is doing well mentally, physically, and emotionally. It is finally, finally, finally the very first episode of the show that we're doing in during the NBA season. Last week, I recorded on opening night, and that was just, you know, opening night is opening night. It's great. You know, basketball is back and everything, but we're a week in now, and all of the teams have played multiple games. We've already seen disastrous beginnings from a handful of teams. There's already rumors coming out about the Lakers wanting to trade for people and, of course, everything with Russell Westbrook. There are a bunch of teams in the Eastern Conference that have really kind of been like stinking it up. And we'll get into that in a little bit. A couple notable teams as well have been stinking it up. That's not so much the case in the West, but I'm just happy to be able to talk about actual tangible on-court basketball with you guys. Of course, before we get into that, we do got to discuss this week in the NFL, my New York Giants, my New York football Giants improved to six and one, ladies and gentlemen. They are statistically the second best team in the NFL behind only the Philadelphia Eagles. The Buffalo Bills, who are 5-1, and one, technically have fewer wins than the Giants. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs are technically worse than the New York Giants as well, which is just very, it's super bizarre to think about when you just juxtapose the Kansas City Chiefs, who just dropped 44 on the San Francisco 49ers, to the New York Giants, who are basically the antithesis to what the New York the New York Chiefs to what the Kansas City Chiefs are doing, the New York Jets are performing very well as well. They are second in their division behind only the Buffalo Bills, and this is the strangest thing that's been going on throughout the NFL season: is that these two teams that on paper should not be anywhere near a winning record are on pace to finish second in their division, and potentially even make the playoffs if they continue at this rate. Of course, the Jets have an elite defense. Um, they did. They were getting great production from Brees Hall. Unfortunately, he went down with an ACL injury and will most likely not be back until next season. But they've been leading hard on their defense in their running game, which, I mean, given the weapons that they have, is not really much of a surprise. The New York Giants, on the other hand, are kind of a different story. Their defense has been... Solid enough. My mouse is fucking acting up. Their defense has been solid enough. They are sixth in points allowed per game. Um, maybe I'm just like not really following it that, you know, closely. But the Giants were, you know, at least from what I saw, they are an above average defense at best. Not necessarily elite, but I mean, the whole point of the game is to prevent the other team from scoring. And only five other teams have done that better than the Giants to begin this series. And of course, they, much like the Jets, have been carried hard by their running back, Saquon Barkley, whom I still believe is near the top of the MVP conversation for rightful reasons. This guy's already got, you know, close to a thousand yards from scrimmage this year. Hasn't really been getting into the end zone that frequently, but I guess that's uh, come that, that's going to happen from time to time when you do have a quarterback like Daniel Jones, someone who can make plays 
with their legs inside the red zone. Of course, trying to make plays from the pocket in the red zone is a different story for Daniel Jones. But, I mean, he's not turning the ball over. That's a, that's, that's a start. That's always good. That was a big issue with Danny Dimes the last couple of years was that this guy just had butterfingers, was fumbling. like He was fumbling like he had no hands. And then also throwing the ball like he had no hands as well. But, you know, the Giants have finally begin to realize that they have a very lethal like option offense, bootleg offense between Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones. And that was a huge reason why they were able to come out on top over the Jags this past Sunday, where I think both of those guys combined for 200 and some odd rushing yards. I know it was the first time that the Giants had had 200 yard rushers in God knows how long. So that's kind of where the New York Giants are at. And we're in this really fascinating space with the Giants where I personally don't feel that they're a deep playoff team, despite what their record says. I know that, I, you know, statistically, they're the second best team in football. And that is, that's not something to laugh at. I mean, they have quality victories over Tennessee. They have a quality victory over Baltimore. They also have a quality victory over Green Bay, although I know Green Bay is not necessarily you know, elite competition at this point. Their only loss coming to the Dallas Cowboys, who on paper have a significantly better team than the Giants do. Defense is better. Um, receivers on the perimeter are better. Quarterback is better as well. Really, the only edge the Giants have over Dallas is their running back. But, um, I yeah, it, it's so weird to see this team be so successful and not be, like, optimistic that they'll, you know, go to a Super Bowl because that's the kind of level that they're playing at right now. But they just, I just don't feel that they have the talent to, they don't have the talent to engage in shootouts with other teams. Dude, why is my mouse like, my mouse is fucking probably just the placement on the desk. Uh, Daniel Jones is, I'm not confident in him, in his quarterbacking. I mean, also, just looking at the numbers, they're 18th in points scored per game, which is actually below average. And it just comes down to them not having the quarterback play to contend with some of these more explosive offenses like Buffalo, even Philadelphia. When they do meet up, I don't know when they meet up uh, later in the year. It looks like Philadelphia, they're not going to be able to contend with, I don't think. Uh, Kansas City, um, you know, teams of that teams of that nature but I really I really don't care man I'm enjoying I'm enjoying this level of football from the New York Giants I, I still think that Saquon is a legitimate MVP contender of course up there with Jalen Hurts and uh, Josh Allen Patrick Mahomes I do feel that Hurts Mahomes and Allen are leading the pack right now but when you take into account like really how actually valuable Saquon Barkley is to this team, that could be a narrative that shifts the MVP conversation because this same team, this same team last season was, you know, arguably the worst in football. And that was because they had Saquon Barkley. Like the receivers haven't changed that much. They still got the same quarterback. Of course, Brian Dable is a tremendous upgrade at head coach. I mean, there is a palpable difference when Saquon Barkley is on the field compared to when he isn't. And that's obvious. Like, this guy is arguably the best running back in football. And this is a very, very solid foundation for the Giants to build upon. Really, the the only step that they have to take is finding some more weapons on the perimeter. 
Kenny Galladay has not panned out. Sterling Shepard, of course, going down with an ACL injury or something like that a couple weeks ago. You got Kadarius Toney. You have a few guys. Uh, Wondell Robinson is another guy. You have a couple of guys who are decent. But even though Daniel Jones is, you know, an above average passer at best, he's not getting a lot of help on the outside. There were sightings of Odell Beckham with the um, with the team the other day, but he was hanging out with the players, not necessarily meeting with the organizations. I would love his addition on this team, a playmaker on the perimeter, just to, you know, alleviate some of the load from Saquon and Danny Dimes running the ball and also just make the offense more dynamic because all of the teams that are, you know, in Super Bowl contention, it's probably as it stands right now, um, Philly, Buffalo, and Kansas City. They seem to be the three best teams in football. And what is the commonality between those three teams and basically every other team, every other Super Bowl winning team that has come before them? They have a dog at quarterback. They have a big time playmaker at quarterback. You need someone who can drop back. I think I said this, I forgot who I was talking about last week, but I said literally like the same exact thing. You need someone who can drop back and throw 30, 35, 38, potentially even 40 times and win you a football game. The Giants do not have that with Daniel Jones right now. I mean, even when they were winning Super Bowls, like Eli Manning was that guy. He was a gunslinger. He was reckless with the rock, but he was a guy who could make things happen. He could make things happen in the pocket, was mobile enough to extend plays, had, you know, a great arm. Again, the decision-making was a little suspect, but that's come. That's going to come when you have a gunslinger at quarterback. But I'm not trying to be too much of a hater right now. I had extremely low expectations for the Giants, and even what they're doing right now is satisfying enough to me. Like, this is just incredible. It's great seeing Saquon Barkley healthy. I think that every football fan is excited to see that. Like, there is, <clears throat> if you really are that big of a hater where you don't like, where you don't like seeing top talent be healthy, you need to go, you need to go to therapy and work through some, some trauma that you have, because that's, that is like the premier hater mentality. And before we get through that, uh, we do have to talk about a common Yankees L. I'm not a baseball fan. I don't follow baseball. I got friends that follow baseball. And of course, living in New York, living in, you know, living as, I guess living in downstate New York is more of a baseball thing. I don't really know, to be honest. I'm just trying to fucking bloviate over here. But, you know, every year, folks be talking about the Yankees, Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, and I don't know anything about it. I know that Aaron Judge is a demon, hit a fuckload of home runs this year. That was awesome. But I really just hang out for the jokes. And the Yankees themselves are a tremendous joke from everything I've ascertained. I mean, they got swept in the ALCS at the hands of the Houston Astros, but I don't give a fuck about that. No, I give a fuck about Ted Cruz having the balls to pull up to Yankee Stadium, <clears throat> to pull up to the Bronx, the BX, the boogie down, knowing the kind of gargoyle that he is, and just be so audacious to actually appear in public in New York City. And he was greeted with the most New York City welcome of all time. I love New York City. I love the vibes. I love the ambiance. I love just like the unapologetic brashness that so many people in New York City have because it is content 
gold. Like, just listen to these guys tee off on Ted Cruz. Trigger warning, Ted Cruz, by the way. City dudes of all time. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. I fucking everybody despises Ted Cruz. I remember one of the one of the comments underneath underneath um his video. I wasn't sure if it was this tweet in particular, but one of the, it was the handshake thing where it was Yankees fans, Astros fans hating Ted Cruz. Uh, a common bond. Like living in the United States in the political climate that we do, it is very difficult to find common ground with a lot of people, admittedly. But when in doubt, I know that I can trust my fellow Americans to despise this rat fuck that is Ted Cruz. He's ugly. He's annoying. He probably smells like cheese and not a good kind of cheese. Like, he doesn't smell like Parmesan. He doesn't smell like, you know, Parmesan cheese. He smells just like hyper-processed craft singles that have been left in the Texas heat for six hours. I imagine that's what he smells like. And also just for another layer of this, like not because he's just a tremendous dickhead for leaving the state of Texas when they were having their power grid failure. He also said some shit about New York values where he just doesn't like people from New York because of their New York values. He of course is talking about you know, New York being a deep blue state, New York having different kinds of, you know, a, a set of value system that he does not have. And by like that set of values, we mean like caring for our fellow man, um, you know, believing that people should be treated with dignity type of shit, <laughs> type of like that type shit. I mean, listen. Yes, I know. I know. I was just talking about, you know, the the brashness that is, um, people that live in New York City. But when you live in a big city, or even like when you live anywhere, and you become close with your neighbors, close with people that live in the same building as you, you will be a more empathetic, a more sympathetic person. You will you will be more willing to help out your fellow man. I mean, there are some people. There are some freaks who don't believe that. Ted Cruz is definitely one of them. This guy, again, left his state when people were dying during their during their fucking electrical grid failure. He flew to Cancun, right? And then and then he blamed he put the blame on his children. His I I think they're like teenagers. They're like 13 or something, and he had the gall to be like, "Oh, well, I left Texas because my children wanted to take a trip to Cancun. It's like, no, bitch. 
no, you you wanted to leave because you wanted to not be in the fucking cold. And you know that a large reason that this grid failed is because you didn't want to fucking modernize it. I like God, he's just he's just so despicable. I hate him so much. Uh, as I travel the country here in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, everyone knows what New York values are. He told ABC News after winning, he contrasted New York values to reasonable common sense and Judeo-Christian values. Cruz's commitment to div- to divisiveness, divisiveness is such that he has begun telling hardworking New, Year- New Yorkers that they don't have what he calls New York values. Only the state's liberal politicians do. Of course, this is like another thing that politicians do all the time where they will not single out a state's leadership until after the fact because they just like they don't care they're all part of the elite they despise working class people you know they don't want to do anything to benefit working class people i mean even to an extent some of new york's leadership are kind of resigned to the idea of helping their you know the the tremendous amount of blue collar workers that populate not only New York City, but New York State as a whole, whether it's like in Albany, whether it's in Western New York, whether it's in upstate, like way upstate New York, you know, there's a lot of, there are a a lot of rural parts of New York State. Uh, I'm just rambling here because I love shitting on Ted Cruz, but I had to show you guys this. This was awesome. Um, I'm glad I'm glad he got shit on like that. I'm glad that that dude was giving him the business in the boogie down. But we're going to move on to some basketball talk. I don't really know where I want to take this segment because there's not a lot of news popping off. I mean, rightfully so. The NBA has been going on for like not even for literally a week. Um, You know, I can give first impressions of every NBA team. I would love to do that. But I haven't watched every team close enough to, you know, have a have a. To have like an actually good take on every single team. That's something that's incredibly hard to do when you have to cover 30 different organizations. And there are content creators who specialize in covering all of these teams that you guys should look for. One area, though, that I deem myself to not necessarily be an expert in, but have a lot of knowledge about is, of course, my Brooklyn Nets. And ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, it has been a rough start to begin this season. Brooklyn sits at 1-2 and two on the year after succumbing to an onslaught from Desmond Bain and John Morant on Monday. They lost. They got draxed by New Orleans on opening night. They won a gritty game against the Toronto Raptors two days later. I believe that was Friday night. But there are some issues with this team, one of them still being Steve Nash. And if you guys are new to the show, you're probably going to be like, you're probably going to be asking yourself, Zach, why are you already bitching about Steve Nash? Like, that's not very nuanced of you. And you're right. It is not charitable to bitch about the coach of your favorite team three games into the season. But the thing about me is that I've been bitching about Steve Nash since January. I have been complaining about his ass for eight fucking months, for nine fucking months. The same gestation period as a as a woman has for a child, that has been my hatred for Steve Nash. I thought he should have been fired during the summer. And it's apparent that after these three games, as many issues as Brooklyn has, a lot of them are repeat issues. The team comes out, starts slow. They had a slow start against New Orleans. 
Uh, they had a little bit of a slow start against Toronto. Their start against Memphis was scorching, but they started the third quarter super slow. This is a trademark of Steve Nash. Is just His teams just do not get up for these games right away. And then you fall into the cycle of starting slow, leading on Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, and then fall having all of your other guys fall out of rhythm. It happens at different parts of different games. It happens against good teams. It happens against bad teams. And that is not something that they can get away with this year, given how stacked the Eastern Conference is. Also, defensively, I don't know if it was just this game against Memphis, and I'm going to be more charitable, not to Steve Nash, but to the players themselves, even though Brooklyn ranks 30th in defensive rating and 28th in points per game allowed. They got off slow against New Orleans on opening night. I gave them a pass because it was opening night. You had Royce O'Neal trying to fit into the system. Of course, you had Ben Simmons trying to fit in. We will get to that in a little bit. I have some thoughts on him as well. They did sack up against Toronto. They won a gritty game down the stretch, largely in part because they locked down Toronto, relatively speaking, of course, but just enough, just enough to allow their offense to come around. They got timely stops down the stretch of the game. Granted, Toronto still shot the lights out. I mean, I'm looking at the box score right here. Shot 56% in the fourth quarter, 51% for the second half as a whole. But Brooklyn managed to defend without fouling and, again, get timely stops. And that's really all you can ask of your defense if they're, you know, playing like shit is get timely stops. Now, against Memphis, I don't know what happened with Royce O'Neal. I was so smitten with Royce O'Neal after the first two games. I loved his activity. I loved his disruption. I loved his hands um, on defense, you know, getting deflections, swiping, swiping the rock away on drives, just bringing all of the things that you would want from a 3 and D guy. I don't know what happened against Memphis. I don't know if he was confused about the coverages. I don't know if he was expecting one type of coverage to be ran while covering Desmond Bain, and Steve Nash didn't want to do that. But Desmond Bain erupted for 38, I think was the final tally. 32 in the second half. And there were multiple possessions where Royce O'Neal just straight up lost him on the perimeter, whether it was just entirely blowing the assignment, not taking the shortest, most efficient route coming off of a screen. Regardless, either way, the end result was leaving Desmond Bain, who is an elite shooter, too much space, and him cashing in on the three. Of course, I do not want to, you know, come off as a hater on Desmond Bain. Guy's a demon, absolutely shot the lights out. Sometimes when you're going up against shooters, they're gonna they're just gonna make shots like that. And it happens. But the difference was that Desmond Bain didn't just look like Desmond Bain. He looked like pre-Achilles injury Clay Thompson. He looked like 2017-2018 Clay Thompson. Just getting to every spot that he wanted and just managing to get the shot off and put the shot down before his man was even capable of reacting to the shot. It was the strangest thing. And I know, again, Desmond Bain is an elite shooter, moves without the ball exceptionally well, but everyone understands that there is a level of difference to Desmond Bain and Klay Thompson 
at his peak. Just, and again, I don't know how that, like, I don't know how, I don't know where the breakdown was. I don't know. Like, I really, I really don't know. But also, I do know that Brooklyn's defense was not that great collectively against Memphis. Also, that game against Memphis was very goofy because the officiating was super strange for both teams. There was a lot of physicality for Memphis that there was a lot of physicality on Memphis's end that they got away with and it was not given the Brooklyn Nets were not given the same treatment. Ben Simmons fouled out of the game on a the most ticky tack foul that I think I've ever seen. In all my years of watching basketball, I have seldom seen a player crowd a ball handler near half court and just only put one hand on their hip and get called for a foul. And the thing was, Ja wasn't even dribbling. Ben Simmons did not impede his progress in any way. The hand on the hip is much more of a reasonable call when a player is dribbling, when a player is trying to get downhill, when a player is trying to, you know, create something offensively. Not when they're at the top of the key running the clock out and knowing that he's already got five, you're going to pin that foul onto him. I thought that was disgraceful. There were people like non-Nets fans on Twitter talking about the goofiness that was the officiating as well, which, I mean, always gives, like, it's always a great reinforcement of what I'm seeing because I hate, I absolutely despise when, <clears throat> pardon me, when fans complain about the officiating because it's such a, it's such an easy thing to bish about because NBA officiating is, I don't want to say it's bad because it's not bad, but when it feels bad or when it looks bad, only exacerbates the problem. I think another issue and something that the NBA will have to reckon with as a whole is how do they transition to a more FIBA-like style of officiating? A game with increased physicality, um, stuff like that, where guys aren't you know, baiting as hard or guys don't get rewarded for baiting as hard because that's another thing. The referees will 100% buy into the acting job that these players put on whether it's on screens, especially if you're a smaller player setting a screen on a big and you flop just a little bit, you will get rewarded for that. You will get rewarded for your acting for your acting job. But aside from the fouls, aside from the lackluster level of defense, um, there are some good things that I want to talk about with Brooklyn. The first thing is, of course, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. I would be remiss not to mention these dudes who are absolutely going nuclear to begin the campaign between them they're averaging 59 points 59.3 points and this is all without them really being super accurate from the perimeter KD's at 33% to start the year Kai is at 28% to begin the year they are absolutely here to ball they are not fucking around they want to win a championship now as great as they are, I mentioned this in the beginning, Steve Nash has to find a way to not lead on these guys all season long. You got to find ways to have Patty Mills be more of be more of uh, a factor. 
He's currently at 11 points a game, which is good, shooting 40, 47% from the field, which is good. You just have to find ways to continue to get him at these easy shots. Of course, the elephant in the room is Joe Harris. The Nets offense looks drastically different when Joe Harris is on the court, and that is evidenced by the minutes he played in Memphis. When he's out there playing alongside KD, Kyrie, Clax, Royce O'Neal, there is a dynamic to this Nets team that they become increasingly harder to guard because the defense has to scurry around more. They have another shooter that they have to worry about on top of O'Neal, on top of KD, on top of Kyrie. This was something they missed almost for almost the entirety of last season. This is something they greatly missed in the postseason against Boston. And it's comforting to see that when Joe Harris is on the court, Brooklyn is like palpably better. I don't know his net rating. I'm trying to find it. Um, Joe Harris, his plus minus net is plus 21.3. Of course, three games, 40 minutes, not that big of a sample size. But the Nets are also almost four points per 100 possessions better when he is on the court. That is huge. And that's huge, again, because you're going to run into these issues where you cannot play Ben you cannot play Ben and Clax together for extended periods of time. You simply do not have enough shooting to sustain it. That is a good lineup down the stretch of games defensively. But if you're playing from behind trying to manufacture offense, your defense is not... This defense as it stands right now is not built to weather that storm. Maybe things will change down the line, but I love them getting Joe Harris involved. I love him looking more confident. He is noticeably more confident now that he is uh, seemingly fully healed. He looks like the guy that Nets fans have fallen in love with. He's still, you know, moving great without the basketball. His sea legs are under him again. His shot looks strong. His shot looks confident. He is attacking again, or he's trying to get back into the flow of attacking. Granted, that is something entirely different that you can't really replicate during rehab. I mean, you can replicate, you know, stationary shooting. And I think that's why his shot still looks so good, even though he's not, he's only converting at like 33%. But there is a lot to be confident about with Joe Harris. I'm very excited for when he's, for when he's, you know, fully acclimated to this role. I'm very excited for when Seth Curry gets healthy because he provided a lot of the dynamic that Brooklyn missed with Joe Harris down the stretch of last season into the postseason. You know, he doesn't have the same size. He is a little, he is a better playmaker though, is capable of handling the ball. I'd say more securely than Joe Harris is, but ideally in a perfect world, you have this rotation of shooters that you can deploy ad nauseum. You have this, trio of Patty Mills, Seth Curry, and Joe Harris, who all occupy a similar role, and all of whom are comfortable playing alongside Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and will at some point get along to being confident around Ben Simmons. Another person, or another couple of guys who I'm incredibly happy to see their development are Nick Claxton and Dayron Sharp. Dayron Sharp has not been seeing that much time. He's only played about 20 minutes through two games. His numbers are very modest. He's he's collected he's managed to collect one block, six points, and four rebounds in two games. Not necessarily the type of production that really warrants 
praise. I 100% see that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking. I got it. Uh, I was looking at Markeith Morris's numbers. My bad. He's at four points per game and six boards per game, one block per game, only shooting 38.5% from the field, though. That is an issue with De'Ron Sharp is he is just fumbling all of these attempts around the basket. He missed a bunch against New Orleans, did not look that strong with the ball against Memphis, but having lived through Nick Claxton and having seen how he's progressed, that is something that I think will come eventually, especially because I feel that Sharp has a more NBA-ready body than Nick Claxton did. I mean, even now, just comparing the two, 6'11", Nick Claxton is only 215, according to NBA.com or according to Basketball Reference. And Daron Sharp, meanwhile, is 6'11", 265. He's that girth, that meat, that thickness that Brooklyn is going to need in the paint to contend with guys like Steven Adams, Bam Adebayo, um, Jonas Valanciunas. I'm not really too concerned about how they perform against uh, Embiid and Giannis, mainly because no defense performs well against Embiid and Giannis. You can't, it doesn't matter. You could put fucking Hakeem on those guys and they would still probably get 25. But Daron Sharp has looked good on the boards. I really think that the Nets are going to ask a lot of him this year to fill the paint, to really just harass both ends of the glass, just be a strong presence on the interior for extended periods of time, 18, 20, 22 minutes. Again, that might be a little bit of an ask because he is still so young and he didn't really get that much playing time last year. But in the in the um in the limited minutes that I've seen of him, he passes the eye test or passes the eye test in the sense that he has the potential to evolve into this guy that Brooklyn so desperately needs. He just needs to figure it out. He's exceptionally raw, but he's got the size. He's got the athleticism. He just needs to refine his skill set a little bit more. And someone who has refined this skill set remarkably well is Nick Claxton. I am so happy that this kid is finally finding his way with this team. It's been three years. We've waited three years for this moment. Clax is a walking double-double at this point, averaging 16 and 10, close to three blocks per game, shooting 75% on nine attempts. That is remarkable considering, considering he is getting higher degree of difficulty shots, more contests on these shots. Just the, the thing that I really love to see about Clax, and I don't, I don't think I can properly articulate how much I'm loving his development, is that during his first three seasons with Brooklyn, he looked scared. He looked like he he looked like he knew he was big, but he was afraid to play big. And of course, there are you know just biological limitations. Um, his strength, his weight. He looks noticeably stronger. He looks more aggressive, as well. And most importantly, he looks more confident in his ability to produce at the center position for the Brooklyn Nets. Being strong with the ball around the basket is the biggest one that I've noticed. When he gets dump-offs in the paint, he goes up strong. He has a solid grip on that rock. It's not getting swatted away as he's going up. He's learning to keep the ball higher. Uh, He's learning to keep the ball higher in the paint because the last thing you want to do as a center is shrink down 
to the level of wings and guards, especially if you're crashing the glass, because when you drop down low, they have the advantage. Their hands are quicker. They've got better ball skills. Keep the ball high, so that way, if they do try to make a reach, they hit your elbow, they hit your forearm, you get rewarded with some free throws. Um, also, coming down with offensive boards and knowing when to go back up with the ball and knowing when to resettle and whether go up a second time after resettling or kick it out. I think that is the biggest thing that centers, that young centers need to learn because coming up through high school, through college, you're so accustomed to putbacks, to easy second shot opportunities that you don't really learn the proper ball skills until you get to the NBA. And you learn that if you get the ball and you come down with it, you keep it low, it gets swiped away by a guard. Whereas if you're, you know, getting boxed out by Fred Van Vliet, it's easier for you to read the read the ball properly off the rim and just put it back with a dunk or a layup. And I mean, again, shooting 60 or 75% overall, shooting 84% inside of three feet. That is huge. I think those numbers are a little inflated, but I do think that also Clax has the potential to be a guy who... who shoots 70% inside of three feet because he had done it last year. He has maintained, you know, great efficiency throughout his four years of basketball, but it's the volume now that's different. I mean, going from going from five and a half shots to nine is a huge jump for someone who isn't accustomed to having the ball in their hands. He also looks much better on defense, he's still fouling a lot. He's got nine fouls in three games, but his ball or I don't how do I how do I say this? His shot blocking IQ is noticeably higher. He's at two point seven blocks per game. Um I'm just trying to just gotta he had a he's got two he had two against New Orleans, two against Memphis, four against Toronto. The mark of a great shot blocker is not only the shots that they divert, not only their presence on the perimeter, but it's their ability to block shots without fouling. Because if you block a shot, prevent two points, that's great. You volleyball it out to your guard, you get a run, that's a four-point swing. But if you block a shot that you have no business attempting to block, you give up two foul two foul shots to most likely a high level free throw shooter and that is another thing that young centers tend to struggle with because it's so different blocking shots in college and blocking shots in the NBA guys are bigger stronger guys bags are deeper their repertoires are more refined they have more spots that they're comfortable from on the floor and my rule of thumb is if you're averaging at least one block per foul that's a good ratio. Of course, if we take a look at a guy like Hakeem Olajuwon, for example, for his career averaged three and a half personal fouls to three blocks. And this is like one of the premier, this is arguably the greatest defensive player the NBA has ever seen. Even when he led the league in blocks, which he did on three occasions, his fouls were within one per game. I mean, in nine, in 1990, Averaged four and a half blocks and 3.8 fouls. The following year, 3.9 blocks, 3.9 fouls. And again, because when you're a when you gamble on defense, because that's what you're doing as a shot blocker, it is effectively what great defensive guards do. They gamble. You are going to get dinged for some fouls. But if your blocked shots can offset that, 
that is, again, the mark of a great shot blocker. I'm not saying that Nick Claxton is a great shot blocker yet because this is only, again, his fourth year in the league. This is the first year where he's really popping off on defense, but the potential is there. The ball skills are there. The discipline is there more than anything else. That is another huge thing talk about with shot blockers is their discipline and I'm just so I'm just so happy that Nick Claxton is finally putting it all he's finally put it all together or is putting it all together offensively defensively everything now I cannot finish this segment without talking about Ben Simmons and folks are getting their jokes off listen listen I understand I understand where y'all are coming from. Ben Simmons has looked like Dookie Butt to begin this season. Less than six points a game, seven assists, six boards, has fouled out of two of his first three games in a Brooklyn Nets uniform. A lot of the slander is coming from Philly fans because Philly fans just want to, they're praying on his downfall. And I get it. It was an unceremonious breakup, not the best relationship right now, but, you know, we are a reactionary bunch on NBA Twitter. We love to get our jokes off. We love to be we love to be haters. I understand I'm not exempt from that. But the reality of the situation is that this guy is trying to come back from basketball after being away from it for almost two years. The amount of bullshit he went through with Philadelphia, the you know, rehabs he had to go through for multiple injuries, the constant just like uncertainty about his return with Brooklyn. Oh, he's going to play in game four of the first round of the playoffs. Oh, he's not going to play in game four. Oh, he's been playing five on five scrimmages, but he's actually hurt while doing so. It was just like the worst fucking situation known to man. I very much wish that they handled it the same way that Kawhi Leonard handled his injury. And it was kind of just like Kawhi will come back when Kawhi is ready to come back. And what happened? Kawhi came back from multiple injuries when he was ready to come back. Of course, there wasn't without some drama there. Um, there was, you know, that whole bullshit with the Spurs getting upset that he was that he sought a second opinion. This, that, whatever. Again, a messy situation. But Ben Simmons is trying to come back on a new team. And he has, yes, admittedly gotten off to a soft start, to a slow start. Soft, slow, whatever you want to, however you want to categorize it. And I think he's in a similar situation as Joe Harris. He's trying to get reacclimated to this team. And being someone who's so ball dominant, it's not easy for him to do that. Especially when you have to try to figure out your spot alongside Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Now, also admittedly, if you don't think that Ben Simmons has looked more confident and more comfortable as each game has gone on, you're lying to yourself. He has. He just hasn't looked to the to the same level as the guy that was averaging 20 points a night when Joel Embiid was hurt. I don't know if we'll ever get that version of Ben Simmons. I hope we do because much like with Joe Harris, that adds a tremendous dynamic to this team. But things are improving. Granted, they are improving slowly. Now, how much of this slowness can the Nets tolerate? Well, I'm going to be straight up. They will not be able to live with this for very long. I mean, I think the game that Ben Simmons played against Toronto, which I'm showing on screen here, six points, eight assists, 10 boards, only two personals, also added two blocks. That, I think, is a moderate level of production that we can come to expect 
from Ben Simmons. I don't think that's asking a lot. You don't need him to be this incredible scorer who averages 16, 18, 20 points because you have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, but you need him to be aggressive on offense. That is the one thing I think that's missing is his aggressiveness towards going downhill. I almost feel like there is this weird complex that is going on where he feels that he has to earn the right to take shots away from Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving because there are instances when the games begin and teams are not guarding Ben Simmons as, you know, they're supposed to be and he is and he's like just flat out refusing to attack the basket. Meanwhile, when you're being underguarded, the only thing you should be thinking about doing is getting downhill and going towards the cup so that way you can actually apply pressure on the defense and make them guard you. And then knowing that you're this freak athletic specimen, knowing that you have the IQ and the ability to make these passes out to the corners, whether it be to Kyrie or KD or up at the top of the key, whatever, you have to, you have to make the defense guard you. If you're Ben Simmons, you need the defense to respect you. That doesn't mean shooting threes when they're sagging 15 feet off, but like literally just like, I don't want, like, I really wish I wouldn't have to phrase it like this, but just like take your dick and put it on the table. I feel like that's the best way to describe it. Like make them respect you, attack them, go with their chest, drop a shoulder down. If you take an offensive foul, like so be it. But make the defense have to guard you. And then everything else will come more naturally. I think that whatever mental barriers are still left for Ben Simmons, whether it is, you know, he's nervous of injury, whether he's nervous of stepping on somebody's toes in the offense, I don't think that anyone on the Nets cares about that. They care about winning a championship. And to win a championship, they need Ben Simmons to play like himself. They need Ben Simmons to play like how he played against Toronto. They need the Ben Simmons that isn't afraid to put his head down and go to the cup and dunk on somebody. So to start this year, yes, I am, you know, it's just sitting here kind of perplexed as to why Ben Simmons is not more active. But I do understand that this is, you know, not an easy situation for him to jump into. There are, of course, some just fucking, there's just a lot of goofiness going on with the Nets right now, I think is the best way to describe it. And I am very confident that once he begins to just once he begins to seize the opportunity, things will look way different. Because just imagine you're the Memphis Grizzlies and you have to contend with these ridiculous shots that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are making. These step backs, these fadeaways off of one leg, these offhand floaters that you have to contend with. And then you actually have to put a body on Ben Simmons. Like, that is the final form of the Brooklyn Nets. I think that at some point, you see Ben, KD, Kyrie, Royce O'Neal, and Joe Harris as, like, their death lineup, more or less. And that is, you know, all of those guys operating at peak proficiency is a really, really goofy thought to have to game plan against. I just hope you get there sooner, sooner than later. Now... In regards to the rest of the NBA, um, I think that you have to be impressed with Portland. You have to be impressed with Utah. You have to be impressed with the Spurs. Like All of these teams have looked tremendous to begin the year. I think that more so San Antonio because this was a team that last week I predicted to be super stinky, super, super just like dookie butt, poop water, whatever kind of, you know, 
alliteration of fecal matter you want to throw out there. And this is a team that's three and one. Granted, it's early. This is a team that, you know, was up by up by 30 against Minnesota on Monday night. Devin Vassell, Kendall Johnson look to be the real deal. Jakob Pertl is playing tremendously as well. Um, also, I have tremendous confidence in um, Keldon Johnson and Devin Vassell later later on down the line. I just didn't expect them to be, you know, to be this good right away. So, and, you know, the, the wacky thing is, like, this is a Greg Popovich coached team, but this team is, like, horrible defensively. I think that's my biggest takeaway from them is that usually with Popovich-led teams, the offense comes second. But with this Spurs team, they're, like, dead last. Okay, they're not dead last. They're 21st in defensive rating and 22nd in points allowed per game. But this is like a top 10 offense in terms of volume and a and the 13th best offense in terms of efficiency. Now, of course, how long are they going to sustain this for? Do they actually at some point shift and be like, hey, you know, stop stop playing so well. You know, we're trying to get Victor Wimbanyama. But I mean, you guys can see the numbers. I mean, or you probably can't because I don't know if this will be a YouTube video, but you know, you're getting again, 40 points a game from Keldon Johnson, Devin Vassell efficiency wise. Vassell is shooting the lights out from the perimeter. Same thing with Keldon Johnson. And these guys are all relatively active on defense as well. Like you got four guys averaging more than one steal per game. Um, like that is incredible production and is also just like a reminder that the Spurs are very young and that at this point they're like living off of their youth and athleticism. At this point, have they been my most impressive team so far? It, yes and no. Impressive in the sense that they're superseding expectations, definitely. But most impressive is kind of difficult to judge because very few teams have separated themselves from the pack. And also, let's not forget that we're only three, three or four games into the season for a lot of teams and that's really not a sample size that you can give like an actually like meaningful take off of because there's so much variability beginning in the seasons. Portland however looks great. Dame is back like he never missed a beat. Anthony Simons is looking good. I still struggle to have confidence in their depth. Right? They're getting tremendous production from everybody, but realistically they're only seven guys deep. Like, they don't have much coming off. They don't have much coming off the bench. You know, Justice Winslow is good for defensive purposes. Good for, you know, clamping down on the perimeter for a little bit. But they're not getting much offense off the bench. And that's what concerns me. They don't have a guy who they can bring off the bench and, you know, put the ball in their hands and get a bucket. Like, not a lot of teams do. Like, not a lot of teams have... That guy, but teams that are contending for a championship have that guy. They have guys who can make plays offensively coming off the bench. But Dame, Simons, Jeremy Grant, Nurk, these guys look great. Fun times happening up in Portland. I don't know if they'll, you know, continue this success, but as of right now, it's fun. Boston also looks great right now. Granted, they had a harp, they had a, you know, very shocking collapse against Chicago on Monday but outside of that Jason Tatum my pick for MVP is looking every bit of that 32 and a half points per game eight rebounds three and a half assists 
shooting 55% from the floor, 37% from three. His assists are a little bit lower than what I expected, but then again, his scoring is also higher than I expected. I Maybe I was a little wacky to think that he could average 29, uh, 29 what did I say, like 29-6-6, six and 29-7-7, six, seven and seven, something like that, like a classic LeBron stat line. Maybe I was a little off base in that regard, but he is 100% at near the top of the way too early MVP rankings. Um, I'm just like trying to scan. The Knicks look good. Um, pretty much like all of the teams in the East that we expected to look good, look good, except for two of the premier teams, and that is Miami and Philly, whom are combined one and six right now. Philly, in particular, has had a very, very difficult schedule to begin the year. They started their they started the season against Boston and Milwaukee. Not many teams are coming out two and zero, going up against those guys back to back. They also played the Spurs, who look way better than everybody expected. They did trounce the Pacers on Monday, but okay, you know, kind of come to expect it with how poopy. The paces are looking this year, but just also looking at their box scores, what the fuck has gotten into James Harden? This is like, this makes me so mad because the Nets could have had this, but he wanted to be a fucking baby about everything. Oh, I didn't want to go to Brooklyn. I actually want to go to Philadelphia, but uh, you know, I, I tricked him into trading for me. Like, okay, bro, you're averaging a fucking triple-double, having one of the more efficient seasons of your career. Like, the Nets could have had this, but... Whatever, maybe just sour grapes. Embiid looks good as well. Tyrese Maxey is, he looks like how he did last year. And yeah, he looks great as well. I just think that statistically he might be a little down. Folks were expecting a tremendous breakout year from him and there's still plenty, plenty of time to make that happen. But if James Harden is operating more as a scorer, which he is to begin this year, Maxey's scoring production or scoring volume is going to drop. 100%. But whenever Harden puts that facilitator brain on, that's when Maxi is going to get a shitload of opportunity. Um, Utah surprisingly looks good as well. Um, I've been doing my best to avoid talking about the Lakers just because everybody is clowning on the Lakers. And it's low-hanging fruit at this point. It's like if you're a comedian making jokes about Joe Biden having dementia Everyone knows, man. Everyone knows that Joe Biden does not know where he is ever. Much like everybody knows that the Lakers have no shot of performing well on offense. It's the lowest of low-hanging fruit. And, of course, it's all been exacerbated by LeBron's comments recently. He began the season by starting off with, we can't shoot. And folks were like, oh, my God, how could he say this pearl clutching? Like, this was not a fact that he was stating. Do you know, like, oh my God, how could LeBron say this? But he could be like, yeah, we got shooters. I'm just, you know, confident that they're going to get shots to fall. And these same fools would be like, they don't have shooters. Look at this roster. They have nobody who can space the floor. It's like, I'd rather guys be truthful and a little harsh than, you know, be sipping the Kool-Aid and be super hunky-dory positivity all the time. Because it's true, man. The Lakers can't shoot. Look at this fucking squad they have. Austin Reeves is their second-best shooter, their second-best volume shooter at 28%. Do you know who their best returning shooter was from last year? LeBron 
Ramon James. All of the snipers that they had, DJ Augustine, Malik Monk, Wayne Ellington, Kent Bazemore, all gone. LeBron, who shot 36% last year, you know, pretty decent, was their most reliable shooter returning from last year. So I don't know why folks expected this to be anything different. I mean, they did trade for Patrick Beverly, yes, and Patrick Beverly does have the uh, backgrounds of a historically reliable shooter. But again, you put him in this offense and like the looks are just not the same. Right? I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Um, I just want to see I just want to really peep like what is the like what is the compare like what is the I'm really trying to find like the wide open shots here. So so far Beverly has gotten like what? Six open threes. Uh forty six percent of his threes are wide open. I want to compare that to last year. Let's see what's going on with that. I don't want my fucking file explorer to be open. I don't need that. Um. Okay, so he's actually getting a higher frequency of wide open threes. Um. Regardless of you know where his closest defender is, but I really don't know how to interpret this data. Then again, this is very early. It's very early in the season, folks. So these numbers are kind of like moot. They don't really matter yet. Yet. So as it stands, Bev is just not hitting shots. Um, Russ is not making shots. Anthony Davis is not making threes. Lonnie Walker, who's leading, who's the team's third leading scorer, is not making threes. I mean, guys, if you manage to see this video, this box score is so sad, bro. Like, you got LeBron averaging 27 and AD averaging 24. That's a, that's a pretty good duo. Even Lonnie Walker averaging 15 would be fucking mint if Russell Westbrook were not averaging 10. Like, Lonnie Walker um, is actually, like, Lonnie Walker is making quite the name for himself, I would reckon. 15 points. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. I got his numbers mixed up with Russ. I was about to say 15 points, 7 boards, 5 assists. Mad decent, brother, but really, I am not putting all of the onus on Russell Westbrook. Russ has looked like shit, okay? We understand this. I don't know why folks were ready for anything different, but again, this is like, this is all management's fault putting the team in this position. Of course, on the court, Russ has to make more shots, 100%. Russ has to play better. He's got to find a way to... Be more impactful. And that really is just like a vague platitude. But you cannot be a max contract guy. This is the same dude who just averaged a fucking triple-double a few years ago. Like, you have to be able to impact the team in some way. But, of course, there is this, this like, double-edged sword. I guess it is where you can't just put all of the blame on one player. You, If you can't put all of the blame on a star player, you sure as shit cannot put all of the blame on the third option in a big three. The Lakers are not helping themselves here. They're, the fact that they have no perimeter shooting just means that teams can sag off Russell Westbrook extra harder and they can sag off realistically everybody and just clog the paint and effectively neutralize LeBron and Anthony Davis. Like, if you had more shooters... 
Russ really wouldn't be a problem. He, or he wouldn't be as big of a problem. Like, just looking at him last year. Yes, he was a bit of a problem last year for the Lakers. But, like, the numbers simply do not compare. He was significantly more impactful last year than this year. His, his, um, his counting stats say that. I'm looking at his advanced metrics. Like, they were not good. Do not get it twisted. They were not that good last year. But he was still more positive than he is being this year. And don't, like, if you're going to think that the construction of this team is not playing into that, then you're just a hater. I mean, the lack of three-point shooting is prevalent. The defense is actually arguably the best in basketball in terms of efficiency. Granted, they play very up-tempo, so they allow a lot of points, but, like, their offense is just so sad right now. And because of this, there are already reports of the Lakers looking into trading for a couple of guys. A few names are uh, Terry Rozier and Josh Richardson. There was a report as well that Boyan Bogdanovich was um, potentially going to get moved to the Lakers. Apparently, Utah and LA were having talks around a package including Russell Westbrook, a first-round pick, and a couple of second-rounders for Bojan Bogdanovic, but he was ultimately dealt to Detroit. Um, the LA Lakers have reportedly eyed Hornets guard Terry Rozier and Spurs wingman Josh Richardson as they continue exploring Westbrook trade opportunities. Shams reported the Lakers have had preliminary discussions with both the Spurs and the Hornets but have not found an agreement. Rozier is in the first season of a four-year $93 million extension. He got off to a stellar start this season before spraining his ankle in Sunday's win over the Hawks. The Hornets would have to add significant salary to make this trade work. Um, yeah, so this is one of those deals that I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if the Hornets really want to take this deal. Um, it says here their willingness to give up Rozier while only landing one first rounder and extra pieces from the Spurs is an entire is another question entirely. The Spurs' willingness to take on San Antonio or the Spurs' willingness to take on Westbrook and not any picks is the hangup, apparently. So ultimately, one of these teams has to get Russ. Okay, how this how this potential trade works is. One team gets Russell Westbrook. That team that gets Russell Westbrook gets one first-round pick as well. The team that doesn't get Russell Westbrook... No, hold on. I'm sorry. The team that gets Russell Westbrook also gets a first-round pick. But the other team involved in this trade gets a first-round pick as well. Now, the discussions rely on who gets the additional first-rounders. Do the Hornets get the additional first-rounders because they are taking on Russ? They're taking on this below-average player? Or do the Spurs ask for multiple picks? Because you could argue that Josh Richardson fits L.A. better than Terry Rozier does. Scary Terry is a score-first guard. He's an undersized shooting guard who knows how to put the ball in the basket. And Josh Richardson is a 3-and-D guy. That is his MO. That's what he was with Miami. That's what he was with Philly. That's what he tried to be with Dallas. And that's kind of what he is now. 
He's averaging 12 points, which is about his career average, shooting 47% from three. If I'm the Lakers, that is probably who you are targeting. I mean, Scary Terry is a reliable option as well from the perimeter. She's 37% for his career. It's just, do you? what do you value more in that other guy? Because I don't think the Lakers need to follow the third-star approach. I think they need depth. They need depth. They need spacing. And they could use a little bit of help on defense. Of course, they do have Pat Bev. I don't think that they can go wrong with either one of these guys. I personally would maybe try to swing Josh Richardson because you could potentially finagle another player from the Spurs. I don't know how likely that is. But if you're able to trade away Russ and then bring on two or three guys, that could be something to consider. I don't know if they would, you know, part with Trey Jones as well or like a lower tier younger player like that. It is possible though. I think that if you do wind up trading for Terry Rozier, that is the only player you get in that trade. And I mean, look at these numbers. They kind of speak for themselves. 23 and a half points this year, eight and a half assists, seven boards. Granted, it's only been two games. He did sprain his ankle. Uh, his overall field goal percentage is kind of shitty. I mean, not kind of shitty. It's definitely shitty. 39 and a half percent for a guy who's shooting as much as he is. And also for a guy who's been above 40% the last couple of years, been above 44% the last two seasons before this one, which is great for a high volume guy. Um, But we'll see. I just know that whenever these trades come up, the Lakers are going to get fucked. The Lakers are going to get fucked over in these deals because they just, they simply don't have the leverage. I think that they're desperate to offload Russell Westbrook at this point. It is a failed experiment. It is a failed experiment that never should have happened. Rob Palenka fumbled this super hard, fumbled his way into an extension as well, which is fucking mind-blowing. And they're just desperate to offload this guy. So we're going to see what happens with that. The last story that I want to get to is just a little goofy. Adam Silver was talking about tanking the other day. He He floated the idea of punishing tanking teams by relegating them to the G League. I think that's fucking awesome. I think that's hilarious. I think that that goofy-ass level of punishment is something that should be talked about more. Maybe not necessarily implemented, but to punish teams by making them play in the G League, I think is just fucking... It's so funny because it's not going to motivate teams to not tank. So we're going to listen to him talk to Malika Andrews. The notices you're considering to prevent teams from tanking this season. Well, let me just say, of course, that's not the reason I was in Phoenix talking to their staff. Mm. But, you know, after we talked about the situation there, I think I got some general questions about what was happening in the league. And so this whole notion of, of tanking came up. Nothing new in the league. And in fact... You know, as you know, Malika, shortly before the pandemic, you know, roughly 2019, we had changed the lottery odds yet once yeah. again. Not that I can say that we knew that Victor Wembanyama <laughs> was coming precisely at this time, but um, we lowered the odds really essentially for the first top 
the worst three teams in the league, and then for the fourth team only has a slightly better odds. So it's, it's roughly around a 14% chance. Mm. So said differently, if you have the worst record or one of the worst records in the league, you have an 86% chance of not getting yeah. um, the top pick. So I think that's first and foremost one of the most important measures we've taken. And then on the flip side, we added the play-in tournament. And the idea of the play-in tournament is that if you're a team that starts slow or has an injury beginning early on in the season, that it's not worth throwing in the towel on the season because you can come back and actually make the playoffs. Mm. So those are the things we've done. I, I mentioned, and, and Baxter Holmes reported it, some other um, areas that we've looked at over the years. I, I, I can't say I was deadly serious about talking about relegation because mm. we don't have the same system as European soccer, and yeah. it would make no sense to send an NBA team to the G League or the G League team up to the NBA. But obviously that's how... Yes, this this is an important point because as far as I'm concerned, or as far as I know, not as far as I'm concerned, there are, at least with how um, basketball operates in Europe, is that there are tiers to pro leagues. So if you're in France, if you're in Spain, if you're in Italy, Germany, wherever, each professional league has multiple professional teams just of different quality. The G League is, while it is a professional league in the sense that there are talented guys there who are making money in the G League, it it does not compete with the NBA. There is still a tremendous talent gap there their leagues deal with situations like this where they force teams to stay competitive because the consequences of finishing at the at, at the bottom of the league are, are dramatically detrimental to mm. the health of of the team but it's it's something as i was saying to the the folks there in phoenix that we keep our eye on i mean obviously we understand we're selling competition to our fans and it, it doesn't mean that rebuilding isn't appropriate for certain teams but i incidentally i view Tanking, I know the way in which you're saying it, but um, certainly if we thought that players on the floor, there was anything happening in an mm. organization that, that meant that a team was intentionally losing games, I view that very differently than an organization that is truly rebuilding, recognizing that yeah. they're going to need to restock with great talent in order to improve. That, that is another key point that is, you know, yes, we make jokes about shit like this because it's fun. And, you know, because we also love young prospects like us as NBA fans, we get excited for young, super talented prospects because when you have great talent coming into the NBA, it will extend the longevity of the of it will extend the longevity of the NBA when you have more and more talent coming. in. There is a difference between tanking and like a team if they were to actively like intentionally lose like we're looking at like a fixing scandal, something like that. You're like you're talking about the I think it was the White Sox back in the early 1900s when you're intentionally throwing games. I don't know if that will ever happen in the NBA because the coaches and the players have too much pride and too much respect and rightfully so to just like throw games for no reason because there's really no incentive to. Everybody is compensated handsomely, which is fine, even rookies. You know, you they could view it as like, oh, a redshirt year almost, but you're making like $12 million if you're a lottery pick. Like, there's no incentive to throw games. And I think that is a, a clear distinction that no one wants that. No one wants 
teams throwing games. But tanking is also just like something that the NBA will will have to deal with as long as there are teams like Houston, like um, Orlando, teams that have a collection of young talent that has not yet reached their potential. And they're just simply not able to compete with some of the other teams in their conferences. Another thing that also plays into this is that when you have a surplus of young talent, and if you're a young coach, or even if you're an experienced coach, you're going to want to test out as many different lineup combinations as possible. You're going to see who plays best with who. You're going to see which three-man group performs well, which five-man group performs well. And that's also, like, that is really the type of tanking that most of us think about. Like, folks that follow the NBA, when you hear tanking, you really just think of a young team that is rebuilding, that is experimenting. That's like ethical tanking, I would guess, because you are trying to see what you could potentially do long-term, who fits best on your team and your system, and then how the current draft class would also fit into your system. So it definitely depends. I think that since because this is the kind of tanking that we're dealing with, this sort of ethical tanking, the punishments don't have to be as severe. I think the draft lottery um, fixing it would be or is a fine. I think fixing the lottery numbers or adjusting the lottery numbers is fine. I don't think that you should talk about fining organizations or taking away picks unless there is like blatant fuckery going on where like the ownership is holding the coach hostage at gunpoint saying, lose games intentionally, or I'm going to send you to the moon. Like that's when the league would have to step in and be like, okay, this is just fucking, this is psychotic, but it doesn't appear that we are at this. It doesn't appear that we're at this point yet. And I don't mind it. I don't mind it. I don't mind tanking because like there are, you are always going to have bad teams in sports. You will always have shitty teams. You'll have great teams and you'll have shitty teams. But as long as these shitty teams are doing everything in their power to at least remain competitive or at least like show that they're clearly trying to rebuild. I don't see an issue with that. And the idea of relegation, like that was mostly floated as a meme, like that won't happen unless the NBA builds out like a clear, a clear system, which would mean either breaking up the current league as it is to have more teams or having a tremendous amount of expansion in the G League and even like a junior NBA t- junior NBA tier which I don't believe is feasible at this moment. I think everything is fine as it is and you know, Adam Silver has to address some of these things because he does work at the behest of the owners and the owners are the ones who are fucking bitching and moaning about tanking cuz they feel it's unfair or whatever. Um, you know, sometimes the coaches and the players will make remarks about it, but these guys are all trying to win. Like there's no player, there's no coach who goes out and is like, I'm going to fucking stink it up. You know, Jalen Green is not taking the court and is like, I'm going to suck tonight. I'm going to shoot six of, I'm going to shoot six of 36 because that will give us, you know, one and a half percentage points better of a chance at getting Victor Wembanyama. Like, Shea Gilgis-Alexander is not like, I'm going to have 13 turnovers tonight because I want to steal that back from Houston. No, these dudes want to win. But they also understand that their rosters, as they're constructed, are not capable of 
of doing that. I think with that, I'm going to go ahead. Um, actually, I'm not. We are going to just briefly mention that we've been. Co- I've been covering the situation um, as it was unfolding. I'm, of course, talking about Brittany Griner. I haven't said much about it uh, in recent weeks because my my take remains the same. Bring BG home. Whatever President Brandon has to do to facilitate that, he should. He must. There should not be any U.S. citizen serving prison time overseas, especially when you consider the circumstances around what Brittany Griner is serving jail time for, for having a couple, they're having the littlest bit of marijuana and being convicted for drug trafficking is fucking insane. She's being used as a political pawn by Vladimir Putin and the Russian government, and it's fucked up. It's just incomprehensible. But she recently filed an appeal and her appeal was denied, unfortunately. So she was sentenced to nine years in prison for um, for drug trafficking. I'm actually going to find a story on this because I don't want to I don't want to butcher it. Um, okay, so this is courtesy of the BBC. Um, I would read this in a in a quirky British accent, but this is definitely not the time nor the place. To do that, this is, of course, a very serious topic. This isn't us talking about Liz Truss resigning because she was more unliked than the fucking United States Senate. Side note, do you know how deeply fucking just like, do you know how badly you have to be hated to have a an approval rating that is twice as low as the United States Senate? We, as United States citizens, fucking despise Congress. They have an 18% approval rating when it was last surveyed. And this motherfucker, Liz Truss, managed a 9% approval rating. That is absolutely, absolutely insane. It's quite impressive, actually. But um, we're going to go ahead and start talking about BG. Um, a Russian court has rejected an appeal by U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner against her nine-year ye- nine jail term for drug charges. The court near Moscow upheld the sentence while the state prosecutor calling it, quote-unquote, fair. The double Olympic winner apologized for her quote-unquote honest mistake in her appeal hearing via video link saying it had been very, very stressful. Griner, 32, was convicted in August of smuggling and possessing cannabis oil. It was not immediately clear whether all her legal routes had been exhausted. She is due to serve her sentence in a penal colony. The sportswoman, the sportswoman's lawyer, Alexander Boykov, said his team hoped that a prisoner exchange would be possible. In August, the Kremlin posed the possibility of a prisoner swap between the U.S. and Russia involving the basketball player. Reports in U.S. media suggest imprisoned Russian arms traffic trafficker Victor Boot, known as the Merchant of Death, could be transferred by Washington to the Russian authorities. As part of the deal, Mr. Boykoff said no judge, hand on heart, would honestly say that Griner's nine-year sentence is in line with Russian criminal law. This is important, and I don't want to gloss over the um, the prisoner swap, but I will in this instance that what Brittany Griner got convicted for, having this, <clears throat> pardon me, I had to keep the windows open because it's fucking like 75 degrees today in late October. Now I got some noise coming in. But one thing that is very um, important, and it's very clearly that she's being used as a political pawn, is that in Russia, as far as their laws are concerned, if you are in possession of, I think, like less than six, six grams, 
if you are okay cannabis in russia it is illegal to use marijuana for medicinal or recreational purposes in russia possession of up to six grams is considered an administrative crime which is has like which is punishable by a fine or up to 15 days of detention now when we talk about Brittany griner how much did she get busted for she got busted for i don't know yet she oh she got busted for having less than one gram of hashish oil which was in her weed pen more or less so it is just against russian law to come down with a penalty this hard it, it it's it's not in line with their it's not in line with their legal system but of course when you think about it in terms of the geopolitical conflict that's happening you have the united states who you already have soured tensions with and you're fighting this unjust illegal war in ukraine and who is the largest supplier of weapons and aid to ukraine the united states of america um just getting back to the article he had he added his legal team would be in talks with Griner as to whether she would want to pursue a further appeal the white house called the legal proceedings a sham of course which they 100% are in a statement us national security advisor jake sullivan said griner was being wrongfully detained under intolerable circumstances and that joe biden had called for her release immediately which he did uh joe, president biden did call for her release although it's unclear as to how as to how far the prisoner swap talks went a top U.S. diplomat who attended the hearing calling the sentence, quote, excessive and disproportionate, which it is. Um, the sports star spoke to the appeals court of three judges remotely from her detention center in a town near Moscow. Quote, I really uh, I really hope that the court will adjust this sentence because it has been very stressful and very traumatic. People with more severe crimes have gotten less than what I was given. Considered one of the world's top players, she was detained on, on the 17th of February at an airport near Moscow when vape cartridges containing cannabis oil were found in her luggage. She had come to Russia to play club basketball during the U.S. offseason. Her case has become the subject to high profile. Her case has become subject to high profile diplomacy between the United States and Russia, whose relations plummeted after Russia invaded Ukraine on August on February 24th. Oh yeah, this is where this is where we are at. This article does not give specifics, but um I guess the White House was not vibing with releasing Victor Victor Boot, who um who's imprisoned for doing a lot of the same shit that the United States government does. I mean, he's a convicted arms dealer, an absolute psychopath, no doubt about it, has caused tremendous pain to however many thousands of people, but like that is the same shit that world governments involve themselves in. All the time. The U.S. has a history of selling arms to Ukraine. I mean, granted, it's for different causes. For It's for defense purposes. But, I mean, that's another conversation for uh, another time. How the United States is just spending billions upon billions of dollars in funding Ukraine. But, you know, Jackson, the capital state, the capital city of Mississippi has no water. So, this is essentially where we're at with this. I don't know how much... I don't know where it goes from here, aside from the U.S. just giving Russia the prisoners that they want. And I don't understand why they wouldn't, because it's just like it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense that Brittany Griner is being held 
in a Russian prison. <laughs> She's being held in a Russian prison. And so is this guy, Paul Whalen, who was arrested on espionage charges. Like, that, okay, makes a little more sense. Granted, he should have to serve that time in the United States. But, like, you're going to compare a literal fucking spy to what Brittany Griner did? It's, it's fucked up. And I just hope that it comes to, like, an end real soon. But I don't know how likely that is. Anyway, I'm going to call it quits on this episode. As always, thank you guys so very much for coming to hang out with me. Everything that I'm associated with is in the description box below. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Like all the YouTube videos. Uh, turn the notification bell on. Subscribe, uh, leave a comment to boost me in the algorithm. All of that is much appreciated. If you're listening to this on an audio platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review, leave five stars, whatever you got to do. Also, tell a friend about it if you enjoyed the show and tell a friend about it if you didn't enjoy the show. As always, thank you guys so much and I'll catch you all next week.